This is the beginning of our new series, uh, looking at the two letters uh, that Paul wrote to the Church of God in Thessalonica. And first and second Thessalonians in your Bibles. Uh, if you can go to First Thessalonians chapter one, we could just take a short reading there first uh, before we go back into Acts 17. This is really to try and set the scene uh, today uh, for what is to come and just give us a bit of a background and a framework for understanding the two letters and the importance of them. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8 says this, The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Then if we go back to the book of Acts and chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 gives us the narrative of Paul's visit to Thessalonica. It would have been the one, the first of probably a number of visits. Uh, the letters were written just shortly after this first visit. So let's read this section together, Acts 17 and verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Paul's two letters to the Church of God in Thessalonica were encouragements to continue living as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the cosmos, in a world that is hostile to him while eagerly waiting for his promised return. What we've read in Acts 17 uh, occurred probably in AD 49 or AD 50, 
and it was during Paul's second missionary journey. On this occasion, he'd been following uh, the major Roman Empire trade routes across Asia and into Macedonia, and then from here into Achaia. So it was really journeying from uh, Israel, as we would know it today, up through Turkey, and then down through Greece. <clears throat> Thessalonica is, a, is an important city with a, a harbour, because it's on the Aegean Sea, and it's where two of the major uh, Roman trade routes intersected. And for that reason, it was a vibrant, pluralistic culture, a cosmopolitan melting pot of nationalities. There was a temple to Caesar there, because at this time there had been for uh, quite a long period of time what was known as the imperial cult, which was the worship of the emperor, uh, the leader of the Roman Empire. And the words that go with that are Caesar is Lord. In addition to that, there were a number of other temples in the city because there was the worship of the numerous Greco-Roman deities and also Greco-Egyptian gods, especially a god, a god called Serapis, who was a sun god and was viewed as being the lord of healing and fertility and prosperity. So that's the background to the city. And Paul finds himself with Silas uh, arriving there. Now, Paul writes the two letters to the people who are converted by his preaching and then are formed together to form the church of God there. He writes the two letters to them soon after he has been forced to leave them, um, probably earlier than he would have wished. Uh, so historians and scholars would tell us that he probably wrote the two letters from Corinth, which was later on his journey, um, in AD 50 or AD 51. As we'll see as we work our way through 1 Thessalonians in particular, Paul had been prevented, he said by Satan, from traveling back to Thessalonica after what had happened there. It was his strong desire to go back because I think Paul felt in his mind there was work left undone there. He'd been forced to move on earlier than he normally would have wanted to. So his letters come out of his concern for this young church. He's concerned about the robustness of their faith in God in the face of persecution, similar persecution that had actually meant that he and Silas had left the city or had been encouraged or sent away by the brothers in Thessalonica. You know, that persecution in that society normally meant the exclusion of people from social structures. You would also have had to put up with direct opposition from the Jews who had real issue with this, this bizarre sect as they viewed them. And also the general population at this time considered Christians to be atheists. Uh, that seems a shock to us, but this is because they weren't engaged in the worship of all these deities or the established God, as they understood it, of the Jews. It was as though they were atheists. That's what they were called. But 
What we learn from 1 Thessalonians is that Timothy, one of Paul's companions, uh, he's described by Paul as his child in the faith. Um, Timothy was sent to Thessalonica. Seems as though Timothy, for some reason, was available and able to go where Paul wasn't. And he had since just returned with an encouraging report. You read about that in 1 Thessalonians 3. So let's just try and set the scene that Paul is writing his letters out of joy and love and concern because of what he's heard from Timothy and because he knows they need some instruction and some encouragement because he's only had a short time with them. When we're looking at the reading in Acts 17, we see that Paul's visit was shorter than he would have wanted. Um, now, Luke focuses in on Paul's interactions with the Jews in the synagogue and the reaction that was created because of that. Now, that's Luke's focus. Uh, you'll notice his narrative through uh, the book of Acts focuses in on, on Paul's um, the opposition that comes against him and his preaching mainly from the Jews. And it's that which ends up uh, forcing Paul usually into prison. And ultimately, that's where the book of Acts ends up with Paul imprisoned because of the Jewish opposition that had come against him. He's in a Roman prison, but it was instigated by the Jews. I'm just going to say something here that um, I think we need to see that the Acts 17 account might give us the impression that the visit was only three weeks in duration, or maybe four at most, if we take three Sabbaths as being Paul's interaction in the synagogue, and if they were consecutive. But the text doesn't actually say that. There are a number of reasons why I don't think his visit was only three to four weeks. Firstly, we find in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians that Paul um, was able to establish his business there and support himself while he was there in Thessalonica and able to preach. First Thessalonians 2 verse 9, he wrote to them and said, you recall our labor and hardship. It was by working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you that we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Second Thessalonians 3 and 8, he says, with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so we would not be a burden to any of you. Second reason I, I think this this visit was probably a few months in duration, was he writes in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 12, he says, recognize those who diligently labor among you and are in leadership over you in the Lord. There had been time for them to recognize elders in the church. And that doesn't happen quickly over the period of three to four weeks, usually. The third reason I think that this visit was longer than three to four weeks was that Paul seems to address the majority of the church in the little portion that we read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And they weren't Jewish converts because of how it's described. He says that you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So it does seem as though the church in Thessalonica was comprised mainly of people who had been pagans or involved in the worship of Caesar and all of the other deities. And the fourth reason, just trying to um, persuade you on this one, is that Paul mentions in his letter 
to Philippi, so the letter Philippians, that he had received from them more than one gift while he was in Thessalonica. Philippians 4 verse 16, he says, for even in Thessalonica, you sent me a gift more than once for my needs. Now, Philippi is where we finish up in Acts chapter 16 before he comes here uh, to Thessalonica. Philippi is 100 miles away. So if you're traveling that on foot, as you normally would have done in those days, that's about a five or a six day journey. So to get two gifts to Paul in three to four weeks, I think you, you can get the point I'm making here. So I do think we get the picture that Paul was here for a few months and he was active in the marketplace, which was the central uh, melting pot of the city where activity happened then. And as he plied his trade as a tent maker, when you read on into Acts 18, you see that when he meets up with Aquila and Priscilla, he engages in tent making with them in Corinth. While he was doing that, we can assume that Paul was taking every opportunity to preach the gospel about the Lord Jesus as he was financially supporting himself in so doing. I want us to come back and firstly look at Paul's preaching to the pagans, so the idol worshippers, and then think about what happened in his preaching in the synagogue, just again trying to set the scene and to give us understanding for the letters. Paul's preaching to the pagans might be summarized in what we read because he speaks of the reaction. First Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, he says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. We can probably see from this that Paul preached that Yahweh, God was the only true and living God and that every other idol was false and dead. Not only that, that he preached that this God manifested himself or revealed himself in his son. And this son had stepped into humanity because he had died and had been raised from the dead. Now, no other God would do such a thing. And he goes on even further than that. And he says that this son who has died and been raised from the dead, this is Jesus, the historical character that people knew about. And he went further than that because the gospel always goes further than that because he said that this one is in heaven and he's returning from there soon. And when he returns, he's going to rescue believers from the wrath that is coming. That seems to be from those couple of verses, the summary of Paul's preaching. And we see it many times in the accounts of, of Paul's interactions with people. Anything that we revere above God is a is a false dead idol it cannot exist God is the the eternal one in Romans chapter 1 Paul writes that to worship anything other than God is an evidence of rebellion against God who made us and he speaks of people who in society and our society today as it was back then claiming to be wise they become fools because they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of corruptible mankind, Caesar worship, of birds or four-footed creatures and crawling creatures. 
a mix of all of those idols that the people would have worshipped. But he speaks then of this living God who has made everything and his son is the means by which he reveals himself to us. And he does so through humanity. He comes to be with us and he was killed and he was raised from the dead. And this is Paul's preaching of the salvation that is for sinners. Because as we'll see, as we come through the letters to the saints in Thessalonica, that he speaks much about the coming judgment of God, the wrath of God that is coming against sinners. To Thessalonians 1 verse 8, he says that he's going to come and there's going to be a dealing out of retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, going on to the next verse, he says, these people will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So Paul appeals to people to listen to him as he points them to Jesus, who is the one whom God had promised, the creator that people have rebelled against, and they worship all sorts of other things. And he says, no, that is never going to save you. That is never going to achieve what you want in this life, the, the deepest of longings in your life. The God who made you has made you for a purpose. And he wants to save you from that rebellion of um, claiming to be wise and pursuing everything else other than him, which is an infinite offense to his glory and his holiness. And that's why the judgment of wrath is coming, because that is what is deserving for such for such sin and rebellion and offense to a holy God who is the creator of all things. Wrath is coming, but Jesus is the one who rescues us from the wrath that is to come. Paul's preaching and interactions with the Jews then in Acts 17, just bringing us back to there. We're told that for three Sabbaths, uh, he had an opportunity to go to the synagogue. This is what Paul did as a formerly a, a Pharisee, one of the most well-read and well-learned um, Jews of his time. He'd been converted himself with his direct interaction with the Lord Jesus. His life was turned around completely in that moment, and he realized the error of his ways and the sin in his life. But here he comes into the synagogues with that story of his own situation, and he wants to point them to Jesus as the Messiah. So his message to the Jews is, is always a little different than what it is to those who are worshipping all sorts of idols. You'll notice that it says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He took what was precious to them, the Old Testament, the Tanakh, and he reasoned, and the word means to discuss or converse. He sat there and he conversed, interactive dialogue with them from the scriptures, taking the scriptures and showing uh, the Jews in the synagogue, look at this. And that's, that's what we as believers are to do. We're to take God's word because it is the basis of all truth. And we're to reason with people, discuss and converse. Yes, our own personal story comes into it. But the dialogue we have with those who do not know the Lord Jesus as Savior 
has to be from the scriptures that reveals the reality of our sin and of a gracious God who has provided a savior in Jesus. So he reasoned, he discussed, and he conversed with them. And then the next word we have uh, is that he explained, which means to open or to interpret or to clarify the meaning of something. So here he is with these Jews and he's taking their texts and he's, he's saying, look, I, I can help you see what needs to be seen. And that was him doing what Jesus had actually said to him. He says, you're going to go and you're going to open their eyes to the light of who God is. And then the third thing that's mentioned is that he gives evidence. That means to lay before someone uh, or to set in place uh, the proof of something. And what, what is it? So from the scriptures, he discusses and converses. He helps to them to understand. And then from those scriptures as well, he gives evidence that the Christ, that's Messiah, had to suffer and rise from the dead because even today, Jews who reject Jesus do not see him as the Messiah. They see the Messiah as this great conquering political hero who's going to establish Israel as the head of the nations. But here, Paul is saying this Messiah, on the basis of God's word, would suffer and rise from the dead. Shocking thing for the Jews to try and understand. And it concludes with Paul saying, this Jesus, whom I'm proclaiming to you, he is the Christ. So from God's word, he comes and he says, Look, let me show you this. That God has said this will happen. And this Messiah, who is to be the savior of sinners, this one is Jesus. And he has died and he is alive. Now, we see the reaction to that after the three Sabbath interactions that he has. The jealousy arises in, on the part of uh, the Jewish synagogue leadership, it seems, because uh, many were persuaded. And some of the God-fearing Greeks, as it says, and some prominent women. So there was this growing group of people who were persuaded by the Holy Spirit and by Paul as he preached from God's word about who Jesus was. So they, they dragged them before the, the town authorities, the city authorities, not them, but Jason, who seems to have been a, one of the people that had a, enough of um, a house to probably welcome Paul and Silas and others in, and maybe this was the base for the, the fledgling house church. I wonder if that is the case, because if we're thinking that Paul has been here for maybe three months or so, they're already gathering together and they're doing the things of a church of God together. And when they can't find Paul and Silas, this mob that has been whipped up by the Jews who are um, so jealous of the attention that Paul and Silas are getting, they, they pull Jason and some of the other brothers, which I think gives the hint that there was a recognizable group that were gathering. They call them up before the city authority and say, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And they, they're acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So the Jews couldn't do anything about them uh, using their own arguments. So they had to bring the argument that they felt would um, shut them down, which was to bring charges of anti-imperial sedition 
opposition to the emperor and the empire, that they were saying, Jesus is Lord, which was flying right in the face of Caesar is Lord. You know, it was a really big thing in those days for Christians to say Jesus is Lord. We just read it in our text, but for a Christian to declare Jesus is Lord had all sorts of ramifications. It has ramifications for us today as well. If we say Jesus is Lord, people will laugh at us. Um, people will say, how can you go in the face of where culture and society has gone in its enlightenment? Secularism is Lord. In fact, everybody is Lord. You're in control of everything. It's viewed as an act of treason today even to say such a thing. But the reality is that Jesus is Lord. And Paul is in his letters to Thessalonica reminding them of the truth of that. Whenever people live and make it clear that Jesus is Lord for them, it's going to bring us into conflict with the prevailing powers and authorities and the culture of the day. In the end, it seems that Jason and the brothers are able to post bond. What that means, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe they were giving some assurance that they, they were going to curtail their activities in some way. It seems that then Paul and Silas are moved on. Maybe they had to give some agreement that Paul and Silas were not going to be given the same freedoms they had been. They didn't want the same thing that had happened in Rome to happen in Thessalonica because in AD 49 and AD 50, Emperor Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome because he had accused them of sedition and treason. And that's why when you come into Exodus, not Exodus, into Acts 18, and Paul comes to Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila are there because they've been pushed out by Claudius. So just to, to wrap this all up, our series is going to look at how Paul encourages these Thessalonians to continue living as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. He's the king of the cosmos in a world that is hostile to him while eagerly waiting for his promised return. He's encouraging them to stick to the truthfulness of what they have come to believe, whether they be Gentile or Jew, to be strong and to persevere in the face of opposition and persecution. He also encourages them to pursue sanctification, to live a holy life, to give the evidence of that transformation that God has begun that work in them as individuals and as a group of people forming the church of God. But Paul also needs to correct them about their misunderstandings about the end times. Seems as though teaching has crept in that suggests that maybe Jesus, who is Lord, has already returned. And some people have missed out on his return. Or maybe because things are so bad, Jesus must have come and we've missed it. And another um, aspect of Paul's encouragement is to remind them of the peace that they know through Christ and in Christ. And that Christ's return is the only way that lasting peace is ever going to come to this fallen world. In contrast to the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. There's only one Lord. Jesus is Lord. And he's the one who gives peace to his followers now. And he will come in a future day to establish peace on this earth. I just want to say this in absolute conclusion now. The, 
there's two important interpretive things to see. It's actually one, but it's, uh, it's to do with the end times. Paul needs to encourage and instruct them. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul primarily instructs those in the church in Thessalonica about the return of the Lord to the air. The first stage of the Lord's second return, his second coming as we know it. It's when he's going to gather the church, the body to himself, all those that have already died and those that are alive, caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and we will be forever with the Lord. First Thessalonians repeatedly deals with that to persuade them the Lord has not come because if he had come and you're a believer, you would be with him right now. We sometimes refer to the Lord's return to the air as the rapture. Then you move into second Thessalonians and Paul shifts. And this time, I think he's addressing the fears of people who think that things are so bad and persecution is so severe that, uh, that Jesus must have come, must have missed it. But he, he goes on to speak in, in his second letter about the second stage of the Lord's second coming. When the Lord will then come to the earth and he brings judgment on all of the nations. And he will establish his thousand year millennial reign on earth. It's the coming day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is to do with judgment. The day of Christ is the day of victory for his church when he comes to the air. So first Thessalonians is all about the Lord's return to the air, the rapture, the day of Christ. Second Thessalonians has within it the teaching about the second stage when the Lord then comes to the earth to bring about God's judgments on the earth. So I hope that gives us background to the two letters. I just want to say in, in closing, because we never know who listens to these um, outside of our own little group on the, the recordings and on the videos. Paul's gospel is the only gospel. It's the gospel of the God who is alive, who has been eternally alive. He's, he's the one who's given life to everybody else and everything else. But we as sinners have turned away from him in our rebellion, and we will worship all sorts of other things other than him. And in so doing, God's response is wrath. Because he loves his glory, that which ruins and spoils his glory is that which he hates and his wrath burns. But yet, Paul's gospel is that God has stepped in and he has borne in his son the judgment against our sin through his death and then has been proven to have all power to defeat sin and death by being raised to life again. And he is now in heaven, the glorified, exalted Lord of the cosmos. Jesus is Lord. And he is coming back. And when he comes back, he comes for his own. I hope all of us are sure that we are those who belong to Christ. And we are sure of that whenever we see our sin and we see the Savior as the one provided to save us from our sin. And we trust him and him alone. And we acknowledge that he is alive and he's coming for us. And he's not coming in wrath. So there's no fear for us. But rather... We look forward to it with joy.